Disclaimer, this show is for educational and entertainment purposes only. We do not recommend or endorse any healthcare providers or treatment. The use of information presented on this podcast is at the listener's own risk. And finally, the views expressed by the hosts of this podcast do not represent the views of any official organization or institution. Welcome to the External Medicine Podcast, where we explore ideas currently on the outskirts of medicine. I am Daniel Belkin, and this (laughs) is Mitch Belkin. We are medical students. I'm at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and where do you go, Mitch? The esteemed University of Maryland School of Medicine. So do you want to tell people to sign up for our newsletter, or should I? Please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're interested, we have a newsletter. We send out weekly updates. You can sign up at externalmedicinepodcast.com. All right. Who are we going to talk to today? So today, we interview an economist from George Mason University who has written a lot about healthcare. Professor Alex Tabarrok is the Bartley J. Madden Chair in Economics at the Mercatus Center and a professor of economics at George Mason University. He's the co-author of the popular economics blog, Marginal Revolution, and co-founder of Marginal Revolution University. He is the author of numerous academic papers in the fields of law, economics, criminology, regulatory policy, voting theory, and other areas in political economy. His articles have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, among many, many other publications. This podcast was recorded on May 2nd. In this interview, Professor Tabarrok discusses what an economist can bring to discussions of the pandemic, the U.S. government's response to COVID-19, the performance of the FDA and the CDC, regulatory nationalism, the First Doses First campaign, and why America should vaccinate the world. And so without further ado, we bring you Professor Alex Tabarrok. Professor Tabarrok, welcome to the External Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here. Before we begin, do you have any financial disclosures? None that I could think of. All right. For those who aren't familiar with your work, How would you describe what you do? So I'm an economist. Um, I write uh, regularly uh, on my blog with uh, Tyler Cowan about uh, economics. We've been doing that uh, for 18 years. I'm also a textbook author. I write uh, academic articles. Um, I've been studying the FDA and medical decisions for a long time. Um, Yeah, so that's kind of a little bit of an overview. You've written a lot about COVID-19 over the last year. What perspective do you think an economist brings to the table that an epidemiologist, a physician, or a scientist might not bring? Right. So I I think a key issue has been uh, trade-offs has been we're in a situation where we have to evaluate decisions under uncertainty. Uh, There's risk in, in both sides. I'm sure we'll talk about, for example, like delaying the second dose. And you have to think about uh, trade-offs. You got to think about, you know, which risk is bigger. When? When is it worth making these trade-offs? Expected values. Uh, so all of these things, uh, making decisions under uncertainty, is something which economists uh, study and tend to be uh, pretty good uh, at. So that's kind of uh, my perspective. So 
How has the COVID-19 pandemic shaped your views? Has it changed any of your fundamental beliefs? Right. Well, l- let me give you a background of how I got involved in this. Um, I was asked to uh, give a talk to the Council of Economic Advisors and the Domestic Policy Council of the uh, White House. This was very early on uh, in the crisis. And it turned out at this uh, talk to be me and uh, Michael Creamer. Uh, Michael Creamer, Nobel Prize winner. Um, and one of the things he is recognized for uh, in his Nobel Prize, for his Nobel Prize, was helping to develop the pneumococcus vaccine using incentives uh, with, with Bill Gates, an early uh, advanced market uh, commitment. So he was like the number one like, person in the world. Um, so it, it turned out uh, that we were very much in agreement um, at this meeting about what to do. Uh, namely, it was very easy to run a calculation showing that the coronavirus, the COVID uh, epidemic was uh, killing the economy. I mean, it's been estimated, the IMF estimated that on a world scale, this was causing losses of 500 billion a month. And if you extend the economic losses to take into account losses from uh, health and losses from uh, less education and so forth, then the costs are even higher uh, than that. So when you're talking about trillions, losing trillions of dollars every couple of months, then it became very obvious that uh, almost anything you could do to shorten the crisis would be extremely valuable. So at this meeting of the Domestic Policy Council and the CEA, I said, look, I'm kind of a conservative sort of free market economist, whatever. Listen, I've never said these words before in my entire life. But now is the time to throw money at the problem, okay? Um, So Creamer and I both said, listen, start throwing money at vaccines. Um, And we outlined a proposal uh, uh, to do that. And then later on, we were asked to write a report and joined by a number of other top economists. Uh, uh, Michael got out his Rolodex or his database and called his friends. We had a bunch of top economists. We We wrote a report. Uh, for the U.S. government, and then another one for the British government, and we started working with the World Bank and other institutions uh, around the world. And if if you could just put one lesson on it, that that was it, that the shortening the crisis by even a few months would be worth hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars. Um, So we were very much in support of, of doing that. We were talking about investing on the order of 150 billion uh, to invest in about 18 vaccine candidates. Now, the world did not go as big as we wanted. Uh, The US was by far the best with Operation Warp Speed. They invested about 15 billion. Um, The rest of the world, Europe, you know, one or two billion, Great Britain, one or two billion, um, not nearly as much as we wanted. But in a paper which came out in science, we calculate that the investments which we did make were worth on the order of you know, $2 trillion. Um, so we're extremely, extremely valuable. And we have been arguing since then that we could do even more. So let me stop, let me stop there. I've gone on too long. But that, that was my basic uh, message to policymakers, is that anything we can do to shorten the crisis would be extremely valuable. Why do you think policymakers in the US were more receptive to spending, granted, not as receptive as you and um, yeah. Michael Kramer would have wanted. 
Yeah, it's a good question because everywhere we went, we kind of faced sticker shock. You know, people just, you know, put up there, oh, we can't spend that much money. You know, where are we going to find that much money? This is very, very peculiar because A, the numbers to us were so clear, but B, people were able to spend, you know, on unemployment insurance or on the, you know, small business loan programs, things like that. And it just seemed that it was very difficult for people to imagine a new source of spending. There was no button. Unlike unemployment insurance, there was no button to press. Now, why in the United States, why was the United States better than uh, Europe? And in Europe in particular, as is sort of known now, they spent weeks like dickering over the price, right? Uh, you know, we calculate that each course of vaccine uh, was worth, you know, beginning in January on the order of like $1,000 or more. And here the EU has been dickering, you know, over a vaccine which costs, you know, $8 and getting down to $6. Just crazy, right? Now, why? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure. I think partly... Um, Maybe, you know, Trump had very few good things, I thought, um, but this idea of vaccines for some reason got in his head and maybe he was supportive in a way which he was not for um, tests. And maybe even the name Operation Warp Speed. I mean, it's amazing how much these things can actually make a difference. Um, but people like that. Um, the FDA turned out to be in favor uh, the FDA is in many, many things which were wrong, which were bad, um, but they were pretty good on Operation Warp Speed. Um, and the European Union was just much, much more risk averse as well. You know, they didn't put a lot of money behind it. They also, they didn't reduce liability concerns. Uh, they didn't trust the firms, I think, as much. So the U.S., put more faith, I think, in capitalism or private firms initiative. Um, and Europe was a little bit more hesitant, uh, except for Britain, right? Britain did everything pr pretty much very well as well. But but why? It's it's very difficult, I think, to understand these, these differences. You mentioned the EU trying to get the price down from $8 to $6. Um, I was watching a video of you explaining the concept of externalities and how trying to haggle the price down from $8 to $6 out of fear of price gouging essentially by producers of vaccines sort of prevents people from seeing the larger picture of the true benefits that come from vaccination. Could you just explain what are externalities and the application to this particular case? Sure. So uh, when you take a vaccine, as you know, you get some benefit uh, for yourself. You're less likely to get disease, but you're also less likely to transmit the disease. And uh, you may count the benefits to yourself, uh, what you're willing to do to get the vaccine, but you're probably going to underinvest or undercount uh, the fact that you're not going to transmit the vaccine. You're not going to give the vaccine to, to other people. So we say this is a positive externality. It means that as an individual, you probably won't invest as much time and energy in getting a vaccine as we would like to, for, for the social good to benefit everybody. So this is one reason you want to keep vaccine prices low. That is, you want to pay the companies. Let's make a distinction very clear. You want to give lots of money to the companies so that they produce the vaccine, but you want to keep the price low to consumers. You want to subsidize the price, make it free. Uh, right now, even uh, in West Virginia, they're giving you a $100 bond 
uh, if you get uh, vaccinated. And that's a recognition of the externalities that there's benefits to other people. So we're gonna give you this $100 in addition to the benefits uh, to yourself. And the EU, yeah, as you said, they just got, they were perhaps so much in the frame that we are the type of place which bargains with the pharmaceutical companies to keep prices low, that they applied the same reasoning to vaccines when the vaccines were already incredibly cheap relative to the value. So it was a case of, you know, penny wise and pound foolish, except the pound, the British were, were actually smart. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they lost sight of uh, the big picture, which, what, which was that the vaccines were incredibly valuable in getting the economy going again. So now let's talk a little bit about the CDC and the FDA. What do you think the CDC and the FDA have done well over the last year? And what could they have done better? So let me put it this way. Uh, speaking about the FDA first, relative to their previous behavior, they have been much faster. So you can take that both as a compliment as, and as an insult, <laughs> depending upon your, your, your point of view. Um, because they did um, speed the approval of vaccines um, much, much quicker than they ordinarily uh, would have. Um, but they were still too slow, in, in my view. Like even um, the time that they took to approve the Pfizer vaccine after the uh, Pfizer submitted the EUA, and then they took you know three weeks to schedule a, a meeting, and then a couple of days after that, and Trump had to yell at them, and you know there was all all of that. Now three weeks is an incredibly short period of time. Um, so kudos to them for you know getting on the ball and doing that. But they could have started a rolling review much earlier. And three weeks in the context of the pandemic in December, which was one of the deadliest months in the United States, that was when the people were going home for Thanksgiving and for Christmas and the infections and the fatality, the infections were, were you know, uh, skyrocketing exponentially. And of course, deaths uh, followed soon after that. So those three weeks while it seems like a short period of time in the context of an exponentially growing deadly virus, um, it was many, 60, uh, 67,000 people died during those three weeks. So that was a very consequential uh, delay. What if, I mean, what do you make of the argument that they needed that time to make sure all the T's were crossed and the I's dotted, they didn't wanna release a vaccine that could have some serious side effect? Why is it that you believe that they could have done that in a shorter period of time? Right. So the FDA is continually in discussions um, with the pharmaceutical companies. So it's not like they were literally had nothing. And then the day the uh, Pfizer submits the EUA, they've got all this stack of papers. Um, they could have been, and they, in fact they were, but they, they could have been reviewing much earlier um, and doing a rolling uh, review. So also, Yes, of course, it's important um, to uh, have a second pair of eyes in addition to the eyes of the manufacturer uh, look over um, the data. That's valuable. But you always have to balance these things and look at the trade-offs. Like 
three weeks if it's an acne medicine okay you know take three weeks hell take six weeks you know the teenager angst could be bad but it's you know don't worry teenagers you'll get over it right um but in the context of a disease which was killing people at two thousand to three thousand people a day was this really worth it right so they found nothing in those three weeks they found nothing untoward um what was the probability that they were going to find something you know which would have said okay no we're not going to approve it what was the probability that they were going to find something which said that, that they were not going to approve it? it was really low so you had to sort of multiply that probability by the number of deaths which which, which could be avoided if you um allowed them the vaccine to be out on the market a little bit sooner and then of course I, you, you could have allowed it Pfizer could have started shipping it out to the pharmacies and then you could have withdrawn it if it was really so bad. Um, so looking at the costs and benefits, uh, I think the costs of the delay were far, far in excess of the benefits. What do you think about the FDA's decision to pause the Johnson and Johnson vaccine for, I think it was a couple of weeks? Yeah. So I think this wasn't the, again, let me, let me, let me put it in a way which you could interpret however you want, which is to say that this wasn't the worst decision <laughs> the FDA made, right? Um, so, I, 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 you know, I, I think a bulletin would have been fine um, because, look, there was really never any doubt or very little doubt that the benefits of the vaccine were far in excess of the costs. Uh, of the dangers of the risks, even if you you know took as the danger you know to being you know one in a hundred thousand of developing a blood clot or something like that, one in one hundred twenty-five thousand, something like that. Even if you took those costs and you assumed that those were accurate numbers and so forth, much much worse to get COVID. Uh, COVID creates many more blood clots. Is much more likely to create blood clots than is uh, any of the vaccines. So, I thought putting out a bulletin. Uh, just to tell doctors, uh, listen, there's a possible rare side effect. Uh, be on the lookout for um, these kinds of uh, symptoms. Uh, here's what you don't. Here's what you do. You know, don't give heparin, right? If uh, if you have in this situation, and so forth. I think a bulletin would have been fine. The pause, I think, was really sort of unnecessary. Um, it looks like the pause created um, some vaccine hesitancy. In general, I'm I'm against the FDA even taking into account sort of vaccine hesitancy, just because I don't think they understand the psychology. I don't understand the psychology of it all. So I think the FDA should just make the right decision based upon the merits, based upon the cost benefit um, analysis. Um, but as it turns out, it, it looks like the, the number of vaccinations dropped sharply beginning with the J&J &J, uh, pause. And it dropped sharply in all age groups um, across the board. So it, it, it looks like a, a fairly negative um, decision. Um, we don't know what would have happened had they just done a bulletin. I think it probably would have been better, but no, one's, no one knows for sure. You mentioned previously that the FDA did not take into consideration a sort of cost-benefit analysis. Do you have any indication that they are actually running the numbers on that? Yeah, they don't. They don't. They don't run the numbers. Um, you know, and just in their rhetoric, right? Uh, you can see this is as always, you know, safety first, gold standard, you know, and, and and so forth. And look, safety is always a relative term, 
right? A drug is neither safe nor unsafe. It all depends upon how you use it and relative to what, right? So, you know, if, if I were to take, you know, a blood thinning drug, right? That's what, uh, you know, when I don't need it, then that's a very unsafe drug for me. For somebody who has some particular disease, then it's a safer drug for them than dealing with the disease. So you're always balancing, and this is what physicians do, this is what physicians have to do on a daily basis, right, is to think about what are the side effects of the drug? Where is this person in the progression of the disease? What should we do first? What, what is our first line of attack? What is our second line of attack? If that doesn't work, what is our third line of attack? You know, um, you, you take your, your gold standard first, right? You know, and um, you do what is safest first. And if that doesn't work, then you might try something which is a little bit more unsafe, a little bit more risky, which has a little bit less of an evidence base. You might do that second or third, you know, when the first couple of treatments have failed. Um, the FDA generally does not look at things um, in, in this way. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is, is that, if the FDA uh, approve a bad drug, then heads roll, right? Then they look bad. Then there are uh, Congress uh, has hearings and um, people die and they go on television and they say, I die or the, the, my, my family died. My, my mother died. My brother died because the FDA approved this bad drug. If the FDA instead delays a good drug, well, people still die. People die who would have lived. And I say they end up in the invisible graveyard. It's an invisible graveyard. People don't see it. There, it's a statistical fact that they're there, but it's very difficult to say that, you know, Paul Jones, who lived at 123 Main Street, he died because this drug was not available, right? Very difficult to say that. His family don't protest. Uh, hearings are not held. And so the FDA is very much biased towards avoiding approving a bad drug, and they are uh, much, much more likely, therefore, to fail to approve a good drug. And that has been true with COVID. It's been true with testing, but it's also true across across the FDA's board. They're, they're too conservative. They're too conservative. And, and in part, it's the public's fault. It's not just the FDA's fault. The FDA is following their incentives. But their incentives are uh, to be, are not to minimize patient death, their incentives are to minimize patient death caused by approving a bad drug, which is a very different thing than minimizing patient death or mortality or morbidity overall. Do you have any ideas of how you could change those incentives to be more along the lines of what you would want? Yeah. I mean, it's a very difficult question because, um, as I mentioned briefly, a lot of it is due just to the public. Um, you know, the public doesn't see the invisible graveyard. That's why it's invisible, right? Um, and one of the silver linings, perhaps, of COVID is that I think we are more aware that FDA delay can kill, right? I think we're more aware of that now, or the public is more aware of it than they were before. But in general, that's a very difficult thing to get the public to understand. Um, now, uh, the FDA used to only have approval authority over safety, um, you know, prior to 62. And, um, you know, maybe that, that maybe that maybe we should, you know, pull back on what the FDA is allowed to evaluate. It, it was safety until 62. And what is it since? Sa safety and efficacy. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of other institutions in the medical system which evaluate the efficacy 
of uh, drugs, including um, you know the HMOs, the hospitals, uh, peer-reviewed literature, uh, physicians, and, and so forth. And and you actually see this again. This is something your your audience probably understands very well. But the whole practice of off-label prescribing. So uh, once a drug has been approved for some use, it can be used for any use. And it often happens that a drug is approved for one use, and it's then discovered that this drug can be very useful against some other disease, which is quite different than the one for which it was approved. And physicians can and do prescribe drugs off-label for diseases for which that drug was never approved. And that is actually a very vital and important part of medicine. So the gold standard treatment uh, in many cutting edge fields uh, for AIDS and cancer and so forth is often a off-label uh, prescription. Um, and so that shows you that physicians are able to uh, prescribe drugs even when they haven't gone through the entire FDA process for efficacy. I was seeing a few ear surgeries and the ENT physician was saying that pretty much all of the drops that they use in ears, they didn't do studies in ears. Those come from studies done in eyes, but they know that it works for ears and they just use all of the same drops. Absolutely. Yeah. So this, this is a good segue into talking about regulatory nationalism. So you've been making this case for many, many years now. And uh, recently you've been talking about vaccine nationalism, but I feel like it's a similar, it's the structure of the argument is the same. So can you tell us what regulatory nationalism is and why you are against it? Sure. So one kind of, I think, small but useful FDA reform, which I have argued for, is allowing any drug or device which, been, which has been approved by a stringent regulator, say by the EU or by the UK or Japan, to automatically be approved in, in the United States within, say, 60 days or something like that, if the FDA does not object. Okay, um, But it would make the approval automatic if it's been approved somewhere else. So the FDA would have to say, do something. Um, and that, to me, is just like common sense, right? Um, if a drug is good enough for the Germans... It's good enough for me, right? And if I lived in Germany, you know, the, the FDA likes to say we are the gold standard, but patients in Germany, when their doctor prescribes a drug, they don't ask their physician, Herr physician, has this drug been approved by the gold standard FDA? You know, they trust the European medical authority as they well should. And so, uh, and I would trust the European medical authority if I lived in Germany. So why don't I trust it if I live in the United States? Well, actually, I do. I would be very happy to take any drug or device which, been, which has been approved in the EMA, which has been approved by the EMA. I would be totally happy if my physician said, you know, here's, uh, uh, here's a drug. It hasn't been approved by the FDA, but it's been approved by the EMA. Do you want it? I'd say, bring it on. I got no problem. I got no problem uh, with that. And in fact, it, it's not uncommon uh, uh, for uh, some drugs and devices, which are quite useful, to be available in Europe and not available here. Um, sunscreens are much better in Europe. Uh, we have not approved, we have not improved our standards for sunscreens in the United States for 40 years. So we are using technology for sunscreen, which is like 40 years old. Um, the Europeans have much more advanced uh, sunscreens and most 
I want to say epidemiologist, but that, of course, is incorrect. <laughs> Epidermiologist, is that who it is? You tell me. Dermatologists? <laughs> Dermatologists, yes, excuse me. Yeah, I got, got confused about epidermis and all stuff like that. Yeah, so the dermatologists <laughs> say that the, um, uh, that the European sunscreens are, are, are better. And, you know, people, the sun worshipers, the, uh, they, they, they bring it in from Europe and they go through special websites to get in their, their favorite sunscreens. Uh, and it sometimes happens the other way, too. I don't want to say that the FDA is uniformly worse than the EMA, um, because the FDA sometimes approves drugs and devices before the Europeans do. And then the Europeans equally well should say, well, it's been approved by the FDA. I should be able to use it, too. And I, I'm fine with that as well. People probably, when you talk about this argument, will bring up like thalidomide sure. and stuff. What, what do you say to people who, are, who say, oh, well, if we had done what Europe had done with that, we would have had you know, many more deformed babies in the U.S. Sure, sure. So there's two things. Um, first, yeah, this indicates regulatory nationalism, which I didn't quite uh, uh, close the circle, which is that people have this weird idea that my country is the best, right? And yeah, that can't possibly be true. Uh, you know, it can't possibly be true that the American uh, standards are the best and Germany, you know, thinks the Germans think their, their standards are the best and Americans think their standards are, are the best. One of them, at least one of them has got to be wrong, right? Probably both of them, um, but at least one of them has got to be wrong. So I do think we should kind of put aside our nationalism and, you know, um, think more clearly about uh, who has the scientific wherewithal to evaluate drugs. And the Europeans are very good at that. Uh, by the way, we actually do this for food. So the United States recognizes that Canada's uh, food safety system is at least as good as the U.S.'s food safety system. Uh, it can be a little bit different, but it's at least as good. And so for our food safety, we have um, deals with Canada where we don't have to double check everything. If it passes the Canadian safety standards, it passes ours. If ours if food passes our standards, it passes the Canadian safety standards. So this is this idea of um, peer authority and uh, is not unknown. Uh, and I'm just saying we should apply it to drugs and devices as well as to uh, food. I've been going on too long, but let, let me briefly talk about thalidomide. Because I mentioned earlier the invisible graveyard, right? So I said that the invisible graveyard is where people die, people go to die where they would have lived had this drug been approved. And it's invisible. So I, I asked you, well, name a drug which has killed people because it wasn't approved. And you go, uh, uh, people in the street, they don't know. If I instead asked, name a drug which killed people, which was approved, thalidomide, thalidomide, right? So this shows you the bias. This shows you the bias because everybody can name, everyone sees the disaster which occurs when a bad drug is approved and they don't see the disaster which has occurred when good drugs are delayed or made so expensive that they are never even actually produced. And yet there are in fact many people buried in the invisible graveyard. What would you say to someone who then based, you know, hearing that argument would say, well, maybe it's worse to have some sort of iatrogenic harm you know, I feel like that calculation that you're doing is a very utilitarian one where you just measure the numbers, but maybe it's worse for the government to say, right. to approve a drug and then have that drug kill people than to have more people die 
otherwise. I mean, that's not how I feel, but what, what would you say to that? Right. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think people do feel that way. And this is going back to, you know, what does an economist have to bring to this debate? Economists, you're right, are utilitarian. And we, or I, I'll say I, I suppose, this is a, a, a one aspect of the omission commission bias, right? That a, an era of commission, uh, one where you have approved a bad drug is somehow worse than an error of omission where you fail to approve a, a good drug. This, by the way, is one thing which accounts for vaccine hesitancy, right? Because people feel that if I gave my kid a vaccine or I allowed my child to have a vaccine and then the vaccine did something bad, I would feel much worse than if I don't give the kid a vaccine and then he gets some disease which kills him, right? <laughs> okay. Um, and you could, because you can kind of say, well, if I approve, if I said he could have the vaccine and the vaccine harmed him, it's my fault. But if I said he can't have the vaccine and the disease harms him, well, that's nature. That was just randomness. Now that's crazy, right? That's crazy. That's bad parenting in my view. Okay. That's bad parenting. Um, so what I would advise that parent is to look at the benefits of the vaccine and look at the safety profile and look at the disease and your chances of getting the disease and make the choice, which is going to be the best choice for your child. Um, which in the case of COVID means, you know, probably, you know, getting the vaccine, probably. It's certainly for adults, uh, they should get the vaccine. It's much, much better to get the vaccine uh, than it is to get to get COVID. So I would say ignore the omission commission bias. That's like uh, egotistical, right? Uh, to think that your decision is the only thing which morally matters. No, what morally matters is the consequences. Okay, is your child alive or dead? And just choose the uh, choose the option which is best, has the expected benefits which are highest. And I think the same thing is true for drugs and devices and so forth. So uh, yeah, the FDA is much more worried about errors of commission than errors of omission. And I think that is a mistake. That's like bad parenting. And they should just do the thing which maximizes expected benefits. What would you say are the best arguments in favor of regulatory nationalism? I think it's good to have some to have competition. So I do worry a little bit that um, if we had you know peer review, if we allowed as as I said, drugs approved in the European Union to be approved here, that that would evolve towards like one regulatory authority, which I don't really want. Okay, so you can kind of see that you know it might evolve in that way, and I would be a little bit worried about that because I do think that being able to see what other countries are doing um, and how other people or other countries are making different decisions, um, I think is very useful. It's part of the you know laboratories of democracy. We usually apply that phrase to federalism within the United States, but it also applies to the world as a whole. Seeing what other countries do. Uh, can inform your own views a bit more. Um, to give you one example, going the other way, which is not usually what I do, but like it, the the Germans are much more worried about melatonin uh, than we are in the United States. Like in the United States, you get like three milligrams, five milligrams of it, which is way too much, way too much. And the Europeans are going like, "What well, are you guys crazy? This is a hormone. You know, why are you allowing, you know, people to, you know, pop these hormones? 
um, as if it were nothing. And so like, I just, you know, take that into my own head as uh, yeah, maybe I should, uh, you know, go a little bit lower, go a much lower dose on the melatonin. Um, Cause that's what the Germans do. So I think we're something to learn from, from competition. I want to move on to first doses first, but before we do just, uh, you talked mostly about the FDA. I was wondering if you wanted to comment at all on the CDC over the last year, things that they did well and things that you think that they should or should have done differently. Yeah. I mean, the CDC has been a disaster. Um, you know, they botched the first test um, for uh, COVID. And then that was compounded by the FDA saying that private companies could not offer their own tests. Ordinarily, private companies are allowed to develop their own tests and, and start using them. But because this was declared an emergency, they now had to uh, go to the FDA for authorization first. Um, so we did precisely the wrong thing. We slowed things down because this was an emergency instead of speeding things up. So in South Korea, you know, faced with the same situation, the South Korean government got all of the test manufacturers together in a room, which was like literally at the train station, because they didn't even want to take the time to go to a hotel. So just got everyone together at the train station, found a room. And, and then what they told them was, listen, start producing these tests. OK, we will approve them later. Just start producing them now. So South Korea, because they got testing going much earlier, was able to get ahead of the virus. And due to the CDC botching the first test and then the FDA preventing private companies from using their own tests and the state governments from using their own tests, um, that really put us back crucial, crucial weeks. Um, what else? Then the, the CDC, I don't think, I mean, it is amazing that the entire purpose of the CDC, right, has been to deal with a pandemic. This is their, the reason they are created. This is the reason Varetra, right? This is their fundamental goal. And yet, because we didn't have a pandemic, a serious one in the United States for a long time, the CDC just had um, bureaucracy creep. They just started getting into areas which are well beyond their fundamental uh, goal for being, like getting into vaping, okay? The CDC should not be dealing with vaping. Uh, it's ridiculous, or, you know, guns. No matter what your perspective on guns, you know, whether they're bad or good or Second Amendment or whatever, look, this is not this is not the CDC's job. OK. And when you have the CDC spending all lots of resources and, you know, people say, oh, the CDC budget was cut. It's total nonsense. The CDC had plenty of budget, but they were spending so much effort and time and personnel on things which were far away from their fundamental goal that I think they lost sight of it and they became complacent. And so they haven't been very good in the pandemic. Um, I don't think their communication with the public has been very good. Uh, you know, they had this whole crazy thing where they said, you know, masks are not uh, not useful, right? And then we learned much later that masks, in fact, are useful. You know, Fauci sort of said, well, this was a noble lie, right? We have to say this so that we would reserve masks for, you know, the, the physicians. And I just think that lying to the public like that um, whether noble or not, it's just not a good idea. And I think the CDC has just been not, they haven't been communicating very well. So uh, you mentioned mission creep at CDC and expanding into other areas like vaping and guns. But you also mentioned the fact that the CDC has not had to deal with a pandemic domestically and in a once in a century 
kind of situation, I imagine it would be very difficult for as a bureaucratically structured organization to cope. So I guess my my question to you is to how much of this do you think is mission creep versus lack of experience with the specific situation um, that COVID brought about? Yeah, that's a very good that's a very good point, and I think it's very puzzling. Um, how different countries have reacted and why some countries appear to be better in some areas and worse in some areas. And, you know, what explains um, this? I mean, there was a survey before the pandemic, which said like the U S is the number one country to deal with the pandemic. (laughs) They have the best, you know, and and you look at sort of the the state capacity literature, political science, you know, the U S has got all this power and they can do these things. And you know, it turned out to, it was a total failure. Um, what countries succeeded? I mean, South Korea succeeded, Taiwan succeeded, uh, New Zealand, Australia, pretty good. Um, one of the things, particularly with the Asian countries, um, I think was experience, exactly what you mentioned. They had uh, a much more serious, um, uh, with the avian flu and I, SARS-CoV-1 and so forth, uh, MERS, uh, it was much more touch and go um, in those countries. And because of that experience, um, I do think they were able to push a button, they knew what to do, they had procedures in place. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the point of view which you're taking, which is that uh, experience matters a, a huge amount. And it's very difficult to deal with these low probability, high consequence events. Human beings are just not not good at this, right? These things which happen once in a lifetime. Um, in general, human beings are not like like saving for your retirement, you know, things like that. Human beings are not that good at that. And let alone dealing with an asteroid strike or a pandemic or a super volcano, um, we're just not good at that. So I I I. I recognize your point there. So let's talk about first doses first. You were one of the most vociferous uh, proponents of this uh, early on, and slowly it seems like more and more people are agreeing with you. What is the first doses first campaign, I guess, and why do you support it? Right. So when the initial Pfizer results uh, came out from the clinical trials, um, I noticed that the first dose appeared on its own to be very effective, about 80%, uh, at least 80% uh, effective. Um, it later turned out that when you look at the effectiveness of the first dose after the first two weeks, but before you get the second dose, it's almost like 94, 93% effective, something on that. The Canadians looked at that. Because uh, you don't expect it to work within, you know, immediately, right? So you kind of say, well, nothing's going to work in the first two weeks. So uh, you take out those two weeks and you find that the first dose was very effective. And that I thought was extremely important because it meant that if we delayed the second dose, we could get many more first doses out quickly. And that uh, would be beneficial for two reasons. First, bringing somebody from 0% protected to 80% protected, that I think is much more important than bringing them from 80% protected to sort of 95% 
uh, protected, especially when you take into account that when you're saying you're bringing them from 0% to 80% protected, what you're really doing, this is speaking a little bit loosely, but what you're really doing, you're protecting them from dying from COVID. When you're bringing them from 80 to 95% protected, you're protecting them from getting the sniffles, right? Um, so, so the clinical trials indicated this very important fact that, yeah, we, this might be better for individuals to get more people protected with that first dose. And second, the more people you protect with first doses, the less the transmission, you know, you bring R down, right? Uh, so if people who get the first doses were less likely to transmit the disease, even if they weren't, even if getting the second dose meant that you were even even less likely right, uh, uh, to transmit the disease, but just getting it out to more people quicker, this could really um, help to uh, bring the to end the crisis uh, quickly. And I think what has happened. So I said that in December, and what has happened is that countries realized much later than I would have liked that these vaccines are scarce. Okay. We don't have enough of these vaccines to, to go around. So uh, Great Britain and then Canada, you know, they, realized, they were sort of by force of circumstance, uh, were forced to confront this fact that, you know, we can vaccinate 500,000 people with two doses or a million people with one dose. You know, if you had plenty of vaccines and go ahead, give everyone two doses. I'm not I'm not against two doses, you know, but this is a situation of scarcity and an emergency. OK, we were in an emergency when we did not have enough vaccines to go around. And that meant that anything we could do to stretch the doses out, I think, was extremely valuable. And delaying that second dose uh, looks looked like a smart move. So just to clarify the argument in favor of first doses first, you're saying in a situation of scarcity, given that the first dose has substantial efficacy, it makes sense to vaccinate the maximum number of people to have some level of efficacy rather than prioritizing certain people to have an even higher level of, of effectiveness of the vaccine. But just to clarify, you're, you're not saying do not give people the second dose. You're saying they can get the second dose at some later date. Correct. Correct. So. Uh, again, this is only under a situation of scarcity, right? Um, if we got plenty to go around, which eventually we will, then then fine, give everybody a second dose. Um, and I do, I, I think what the British did 12 weeks, um, I think was a reasonable decision. Canada pushed it even a little bit further to 16 weeks. I think as Canada gets more doses, then they will shorten the the, the delay, right? But until you've got plenty of doses, then I think um, extending the time to give the second dose is smart. And also remember, look, these vaccines were produced under a, the, the firms to their credit, to their credit, produced these vaccines incredibly quickly, right? Um, and the decision to make the second dose at three weeks or four weeks, this was not a decision which was made to optimize even individual health, right? They made that decision was the shortest possible time that they had expected uh, an, an effect because they wanted to finish the clinical trials as quickly as possible. I mean, if you'd extended the second dose to eight weeks, then that's another four weeks you have to wait before you can apply to the FDA for an EUA. And that is deadly. That is deadly. Hundreds of thousands of people would die. 
So shortening the time between doses made perfect sense for to get the EUA as quickly as possible, which was totally the right thing to do. But it's not a magical number. You know, that, those three weeks and that four weeks is not a magical number. And in fact, what we discovered in the case of the AstraZeneca vaccine, actually delaying makes the vaccine more effective. Okay, so there's like literally no reason not to delay the AstraZeneca vaccine to 12 weeks because efficacy actually goes up. And that's pretty common for vaccines. Like most vaccines, you don't give within you don't give the booster shot within three or four weeks. You might give it three or four months uh, later. So it's not uncommon for vaccines to have a quite extensive delay between the first shot and the booster shot. And that's often, you know, stimulates the immune system in a more effective way. What are the best arguments you've heard against first doses first? So I think one argument is that people will forget to get their second dose. Okay. And, you know, even now in the United States, not everyone is getting their second dose. Of course, that's totally common for vaccines, uh, for people not to follow up um, with the booster shots. Um, and maybe if you did it within three or four weeks or more people would get it, I, I, that's a possible argument. People were worried early on about immune escape, that if you delayed the second dose, that would leave more people partially protected, which would allow the virus to uh, mutate. I think that argument now turns out to be um, minor or wrong because you also have to take into account that where the virus is mutating is in the unvaccinated population. So when we talk about the South African variant and the Brazilian variant and the Indian variant, the, those variants are not coming from people who were vaccinated. Those variants are coming from the unvaccinated population. So the more people that you have who are unvaccinated, which is 0% protection, you know, you know, if you think partial protection is bad, well, like zero is better, is, is worse than 80% protected, right? Um, so if you're worried about partial protection, meaning that the virus mutates, then you want to vaccinate as many people as quickly as possible. So I think what the epidemiologists and the virologists are now um, coming around to is that actually delaying the second dose can uh, reduce uh, uh, immune escape. Can you think of some individuals who have actually public public figures that have actually changed their mind on first doses first? Yeah, so I think um, Atul Gawande uh, changed his mind. Um, Ezekiel Emanuel um, came out. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he changed his mind, but he more recently he came out for um, delaying uh, the second dose. Um, the, the Canadians, you know, uh, changed their mind. Um, so the, you know, the NACI, their, their national co commission, I think uh, only later came to realize that, listen, we, we're really faced with a scarcity of vaccines and um, it's going to be better for us to get more uh, people vaccinated with the first dose. I think also this is going to be, this is still extremely important. Like in the United States, we're coming to the end of the uh, pandemic. Um, and, you know, almost any adult can be vaccinated sort of on demand uh, in the United States right now. So we're coming to the end. Um, so it's not a useful policy for the United States any longer. But the rest of the world is still very much under vaccine scarcity. So there are many, many countries where none or only a tiny fraction of the population have been vaccinated. 
So for them, stretching doses is going to be vitally important. That could be delaying the second dose. I also think um, fractional dosing uh, could be extremely, extremely important and uh, useful. We know from the Moderna phase one and phase two trials that a uh, fractional dose, like a half dose, appears to induce a substantial immune response, um, almost as large a, a robust immune response as the you know uh, the 50 uh, microgram milligram microgram I think uh, uh, dose is just as good as 100 uh, a dose, um, and so if we could do some more studies or if we I, I, I like put it this way, if we could go, if we could half the doses, that's equivalent to doubling the number of Moderna and Pfizer factories overnight. So that tells you how valuable this could be. If you could half the doses, that's like a trillion dollar or more opportunity. That's many lives uh, potentially to be saved. And I should note, you know, before you think, oh, this is some crazy economist, you know, with this idea of, you know, fractional dosing. Uh, no, this has been used in epidemics, pandemics, epidemics in the past. So um, Brazil had a yellow fever outbreak in 2018, and they didn't have enough vaccine um, to, to give everybody the full dose. So they went actually to one-fifth doses. And one-fifth doses was enough to break transmission. Um, it was enough to stop it from going exponential, right? Um, so... Uh, uh, so this idea has been used in past pandemics, and I think uh, it has a lot, a lot of potential uh, to be used for COVID. And again, remember that the vaccine manufacturers, they weren't trying to optimize, you know, like usually they might optimize, you know, they might do some more studies because they got years to make these vaccines. They might optimize it. Okay. Should it be hundred or 75 or 70, but here, right. They just want to go as quickly as possible again to their credit. Thank you. Thank you, Pfizer. Thank you for Moderna for doing that. Um, and so they went with a large dose just to make sure that they got one, which is going to work, but we don't have, that's not a magical number. It is not a magical number. You know, people say follow the science as if it means doing exactly what they did in the clinical trials, which is not true at all. When you think about following the science, you have to think about the entire body of evidence, which is available to us. And um, that includes many past pandemics. That, that includes the phase one and phase two trials on the uh, immune system response. And it includes thinking about risks and benefits as well. Uh, so uh, I think the Following the science means taking the idea of fractional doses very, very seriously. Recently, you've been arguing that America should vaccinate the world. What does that look like and why should we do it? Correct. So this was something which um, the team, which was I, I was involved in, was very, was thinking, was very much on their minds right from the beginning. Because what we advised governments to do was not to buy doses. OK, what we advised them to do was to invest in capacity, uh, which Operation Warp Speed to some extent did. So Operation Warp Speed uh, paid for the Moderna to build factories. Moderna at the beginning had no factories, had no ability to produce 
uh, more than just the amount they needed for like, you know, running their own tests and running their own clinical trials. They had no ability to manufacture at scale. And the United States Operation Warp Seed came in and said, we're going to pay for your factories. Okay. And we're going to pay to run these clinical trials. Um, that was the right thing to do. Well, why? Well, there were a couple of reasons. First, if you just invested in doses, buying doses, then you ran the risk of being pushed to the end of the queue later on. Okay, it was very difficult then to make sure that you would be get your doses first. And this is the problem which Canada had. So Canada bought doses, they bought a lot of doses, they were smart, but they ended up being pushed to the back of the queue because they didn't have any capacity. They didn't invest in capacity. Um, so we said invest in capacity, because then you can, it's more credible that you can have these doses produced. Second, what this meant was that once the, the US wanted capacity to go fast, but once that capacity, once the US is vaccinated, that means that capacity is left over for the rest of the world. So we were thinking very much then, and this is what is now happening, is that the US would invest, go big on capacity, would go fast, and then there would be lots of factories for the rest of the world, just starting to happen. So Pfizer right now, just in the past few days, has started to export from the United States. Uh, previously, all of the US Pfizer was going to the United States. But now that the US is got plenty of vaccines, Pfizer is starting to export from its US factories overseas. Okay, so we can vaccinate the world. We have the capacity uh, uh, to do it. Why should we do it? Well, when I spoke before Congress, I said, look, there's at least three reasons. Uh, first of all, I'm an economist. Let's forget about the humanitarian reason. Okay. <laughs> okay. Forget humanitarianism. Okay. Okay. Let's just, I'll just, that's not my, that's not my, uh, that's not my bailiwick. <laughs> we'll let somebody else do humanitarian. Okay. Here's my bailiwick. We have health reasons, economic reasons, and political reasons, health reasons to stop the variants. So, you know, what I said is, listen, if you're really worried about the, you know, the South African variant and the Brazilian variant, the best way to protect your constituents is to vaccinate South Africans and Brazilians, okay? And now, of course, Indians as well, right? So until everyone is safe, no one is safe. It sounds trite, but it really is uh, true when it comes to a, a viral, a virus. So there are health reasons to do it, economic reasons. Uh, we are part of a globalized economy. So even once we are vaccinated and once other high income countries are vaccinated, we are still exporting, we are importing, and we are consuming products which um, are produced using long supply chains involving many countries. So you just look at the supply chain, you know, for the Pfizer vaccine, for example, it's like 70 countries, right? Or you look at the Apple iPhone, you know, there's like 100 countries are participating in um, aspects, you know, the chips and the screens and all that in the uh, iPhone. So there's plenty of reasons, economic reasons, to vaccinate the world. And it's cheap. Okay. It's not that expensive to vaccinate the world. Okay. Um, it can be in our economic interests uh, to do this. Um, and then the third reason is political is that, look, and I, this again, I told Congress, you know, you want to kind of get as many people on your side as possible. Right. So you have to appeal to as many different audiences. So thinking about the foreign policy audience, I said, look, it's a Chinese plan to vaccinate the world or an American plan. And I would prefer there would be an American plan, right? So uh, the Chinese were early, um, you know, about here's our vaccine, take our vaccine, and using that as a uh, 
as a foreign policy gain, as a piece of diplomacy for an authoritarian regime. And I would rather that we have the arsenal of vaccination, I think as Noah Smith uh, put it, uh, we, the US arsenal of immunity. And we use our arsenal to uh, vaccinate the world. It's gonna be a big uh, foreign policy gain and we got to we have to do it quickly. We got to get moving on this because there is a perception beginning in the rest of the world that we are vaccine hoarders. Um, it's not actually true, but that perception is growing. And to counter that perception, we really should uh, donate to COVAX and start using our capacity, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, get the Novavax vaccine uh, online, start producing in mass quantities, and let's have an American plan to vaccinate the world. Thank you so much for joining us on the External Medicine Podcast. If people are interested in learning more about the work that you do, where would you direct them to? So you can check out my blog, Marginal uh, Revolution. Um, and that's Tyler Cowan and myself. Uh, Tyler publishes something every single day. Um, I publish uh, every couple of days, maybe a couple of times a week. Um, and uh, yeah, you'll we've, we've been there a long time, 18 years now. Uh, but uh, you keep following Marginal Revolution and you, you'll get a uh, feel for our personalities and our interests and things like that over time. It's a fun it's a fun blog, I think. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, it was great meeting you. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure talking to you both. If you'd like to support us, here are some ways you can help. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, preferably a phenomenal review. Visit us at externalmedicinepodcast.com and tell your friends. 